Hello, everyone, and welcome back to my channel. Let's get into today's case. This one is pretty bizarre. Today, we're going to be talking about Russell, who goes by Rusty, and Andrea Snyderman. Let's start off with Andrea. So Andrea, originally known as Andrea Greenberg, was born and raised in a northern city of Ohio called Silvana with her brother Todd. Growing up, she was a very smart student, a well-behaved kid, and from a very young age, she always excelled in subjects like math and science. Eventually, she attended the University of Indiana, where she studied computer information sciences and technology. And Andrea was Jewish and her faith was very important to her, especially during her time at university. In 1994, Andrea began visiting the Jewish Student Center on campus, and it was there that she met a boy named Rusty. Andrea had actually recognized him from around campus and thought he was good looking. She was interested. He asked her to go on a date. And of course, she said yes. Now, Rusty, whose full name is Russell Snyderman, was also from Ohio. His parents, Donald and Marilyn, raised him and his brother, Steve, in Cleveland. And he was also a very smart person. He was an excellent student and attended Beechwood High School, where he actually was the editor for the school paper. And Rusty was also very well liked among fellow students. And he was also a member of the school golf team. He and Andrea hit it off very early on in their relationship and their connection was only made stronger by their shared religion. So Rusty ended up graduating from the University of Indiana in 1996 and then moved back to Cleveland to work for an accounting firm. Andrea graduated two years later and then the two of them moved to Chicago to work for the same company. Andrea worked in the tech department and Rusty worked in the finance department. And then eventually in 2002, Rusty ended up proposing to Andrea when they were on a vacation in California. And during this time, Rusty was actually getting his MBA at Harvard Business School. And he was actually able to find Andrea a position at Harvard in information technology. And that lasted a few years, but then he ended up getting another job offer in business development for a company that was based out of Atlanta, Georgia. And he and Andrea felt like this would be a great place for them to settle down and raise children. So he decided to accept the position and off to Atlanta they went. And Andrea was actually able to continue doing her job for Harvard. She just did it remotely. So then in 2005, Andrea gave birth to their first daughter, who's named Sophia. And at this point, Andrea and Rusty decided they wanted to move to a neighborhood with better schools. So they bought a home in Dunwoody, Georgia. Dunwoody was a great place for them to live because it had a Jewish community center and they became very active in that. And then in October of 2007, Andrea gave birth to their son, Ian. And by this point, the two of them had done really well for themselves financially. So they bought a home on a lake in Eatonton, Georgia. But eventually the recession hit and that was a really hard time for most people. And Rusty ended up losing his job. However, they were able to stay afloat just fine because they were really good at managing their money and they had a lot of savings. We're savers. When everyone else is going out to uh, fancy dinners, we're eating peanut butter and jelly at home. So we save our money. I've worked many jobs, successful jobs myself. Rusty has made a lot of money over the years. We saved it. Our financial situation was just fine. Um, in the times that Rusty was unemployed, uh, I was always making consulting income at that time, or he himself was making consulting income at that time. It took him a little bit of time, but eventually Rusty did find another job. He started working as a CFO for Discovery Point, which is a child development and daycare chain. However, this job didn't last long because he and the CEO really started to butt heads and it was just a toxic situation. Andrea said that Rusty 
left his job on his own, that it was a joint decision between him and the company. However, there are reports out there that say that Rusty was fired. And with all of this going on, Andrea decided that she wanted to look for a new job. She was doing consulting work at the time and things were starting to slow down. So she wanted to find something a bit more permanent. And in early 2010, she was told about a position at General Electric or GE. It turns out a friend of Andrea's was in a book club with a woman named Ariella Newman. And Ariella was married to Hemi Newman, the manager of GE. And when the two connected, Andrea thought this would be a good position for her to apply for. So she submitted a resume and that same year in March, she was hired as a quality systems manager. I was a quality systems manager. It's basically a fancy word for being a a project manager over the quality management systems that GE puts in place to help with their product creation. Rusty, on the other hand, was unemployed at this time. However, he was thinking about starting up his own venture. He had a real entrepreneur spirit and had always dreamed of starting something of his own. Plus, they had enough savings that he could do that without really putting a strain on the family. So this is when Rusty comes up with the idea for star voicemails. Imagine if you were to call someone else's phone, they didn't answer. And instead of hearing, hi, this is Susie, you heard, hi, this is Justin Bieber. Susie's out with me shopping and she can't get to you right now. But hey, have a great day. And so it's Justin Bieber's voice, for example, saying Susie's name. So there's a technology of recording that star's voice and merging it with the person's name. And then um, obviously it would be like an app that someone would purchase. So you could purchase the George Clooney or the, you know, Justin Bieber or the whomever your favorite star was. Which was a interesting concept. I can see maybe how back then this would have been a little more intriguing to people. So Rusty is at home working on star voicemails and Andrea is working full time. So he is kind of the main caregiver for the kids at this point. And Andrea is also traveling a lot for work at this point. She was gone quite a bit. She said that travel was only supposed to make up about 20% of her job, but that was not the case. She was traveling a lot more than that. Obviously the travel situation isn't super ideal, especially for Rusty, but overall things were going pretty well for the Snyderman family. That is up until October 2010. One day in late October, the two were upstairs in their bedroom when they heard the garage door open. And they thought that was really weird because they weren't expecting anyone to come over. And even if they had, nobody, they thought, knew their garage code. Any friend that would be coming over would have knocked on the front door. So they instantly knew something was off. Rusty decided to call 911 and report the incident. However, Nothing was stolen. There was no sign that anyone had been there. So the police told them that it was likely a glitch in the system. So they brushed it off and continued on with their lives. And then on November 10th, 2010, Rusty had to call 911 again due to a suspicious person on their property. Andrea says that Rusty called her at work that day to tell her exactly what had happened. I guess he was getting Ian into his car seat in the garage when he suddenly smelled gasoline. So he goes around to the side of their house to the gas meter to see what was going on. And that's when he sees a man lying face down on the ground, which obviously freaks him out. So he runs back to his car, jumps in and backs out of the driveway. And when he does that, the man jumps up and runs off. And Rusty was able to get a better glimpse of him so he could give a description to 911. 
I think he has a gun in his back pocket, and now he's running away. I don't know who the hell he is, and I don't want him by my house. He was wearing a hat and earmuffs, black mustache. He had put Ian in the car, as he does every day around that time, and Ian's car seat is on the right passenger side in the back, and as he walked around, he smelled gas. Our gas meter and pipe is on the side of the left side of the house if you're looking at the front. So he walked over to that spot that's near our air conditioners, and he said that there was a man lying face down on the ground. So shortly after this happens, on November 18th, 2010, Andrea drove her daughter to kindergarten on her way to work, and Rusty was responsible for dropping their son off at preschool at Dunwoody Prep. He drops Ian off like normal, and only seconds after dropping him off, he's walking back through the parking lot to his car when suddenly four gunshots go off. Obviously, people in the area heard it, and several people ran outside and discovered Rusty was on the ground. A pediatric doctor worked just right around the corner, so he quickly came out and started trying to, you know, perform life-saving measures on Rusty and hopefully save his life, but it was too late. Paramedics got there. They took over trying to do CPR, but Rusty was gone. He was pronounced dead before he even arrived to Atlanta Medical Center. So a few witnesses had seen the man who fired the gun, and they gave descriptions of him and his vehicle to investigators. They said he was about 5'10", 5'11". He was wearing a hoodie and had on a fake beard as a disguise. And he drove a silver minivan with no plates. On November 18th, 2010, Rusty Steinerman had just dropped his two-year-old son off to Dunwoody Prep. Seconds later, shots rang out and Steinerman lay bleeding in the parking lot. I saw there was a man on the ground. He would later die at the hospital. Just shocked that it happened here at a, a school. The next day, Dunwoody police released this sketch of the gunman, described as Middle Eastern, wearing what appeared to be a fake beard. Shortly after Rusty was taken from the scene, Andrea got a call at work from Donna, who worked at Dunwoody Prep, and she told her that Ian was okay not to worry, but something had happened and she needed to get there immediately. Donna chose not to tell her specifically what had happened. She didn't say anything about Rusty or gunshots because she wanted her to drive there safely. After receiving that call, Andrea said she quickly went to her car and started making calls herself. I got in my car and I drove. I made several phone calls. Do you remember who you called? Oh, my parents. My brother, Rusty's parents. I said something's happened to Rusty. I have no idea what, and I, that's all I said, and I was belligerent on the phone. At that time, did you know what had happened to Rusty? No. Okay. She says when she got there, no one told her what happened. She actually says that it wasn't until she got to the emergency room that anyone had told her what had actually happened that day, and that is important to note for later. I didn't know what happened to Rusty until I got to the emergency room. So it was believed from the start that Rusty was the intended victim of this attack. It wasn't like a wrong place, wrong time type of situation. And at first, investigators felt like the person was a professional, possibly, because they left little evidence behind for the police. They took their license plates off. They wore a disguise that would be easy to confuse with many other people. Rusty's brother, Steve, made a public plea for anyone to come forward with any information. We need your help desperately. Any information, anything at all could help. A search warrant for Rusty's car 
and the Snyderman home was quickly granted so that investigators could potentially find evidence of someone who had something against him. And it was during the search of their home that one investigator sat down with the Snyderman family and began to get to know them. And he quickly learned about their early lives and how Andrea and Rusty met their work history, their children, their personal lives, Rusty's new business venture, etc. Andrea also reminded the investigators about the suspicious events that had happened in the weeks before this. The garage door just randomly opening, and then the strange man who was lying on the ground and how Rusty had smelled gasoline. She told them that she felt like whoever it was that was lying face down on their property was responsible for his death. And investigators started theorizing as well. They, from the jump, felt like maybe it was someone that Rusty had done business dealings with. They started looking at, you know, anyone who Rusty had worked with over the years and tried to see if there was anyone that stood out to them or anyone who would have something against Rusty. But Andrea said that they were wasting their time. And further on in their conversations with Andrea, one investigator brings up the idea to Andrea that maybe it was someone who had interest in her and asked her if there was anyone who had ever shown interest in her. And she said, yes, her boss, Hemi Newman. She told investigators that he had expressed interest in her, but that she told him she was not interested in him and that his feelings wouldn't go anywhere. Investigators also seized the family computer and some documents, which included Rusty's life insurance policy, which was for $2 million dollars. And Andrea was the sole beneficiary. Andrea then said throughout the rest of November and all of December, she heard very little about the investigation. It didn't seem like the police really had come up with any new leads. So in December, she and her parents and her kids all go on a trip to Florida to celebrate what would have been her 10 year anniversary with Rusty, which obviously would have been very difficult. The two of them had actually gotten married in Florida in a synagogue, and this trip was in his memory. But on this trip, Andrea ends up calling a friend and tells her that she knows that Hemi, her boss, was responsible for Rusty's murder. She tells this to a friend, but doesn't tell this to the police. Andrea said that the reason she didn't go to the police was because she was worried that Hemi was monitoring her phone and her emails, and she feared for her safety. However, many people have said this is pretty odd because you'd think this is pretty important information to get to the police as soon as possible. And there's other ways she could have contacted them. You know, she could have used any other phone other than hers. She could have used her parents' email. I mean, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. But nonetheless, she waits until she returns from Florida to go to the police with this information that she thinks she knows who killed her husband. And by this time, the only other time that she had mentioned Hemi's name to police was when they asked her if anyone had expressed interest in her. And she said yes my boss. On January 4th, 2011, Andrea goes to the police and tells them about Hemi. She goes in there actually with a list of people that she thinks could have been responsible for killing her husband. And Hemi was one of them. And she asked if they had really looked into Hemi and they said no. That's according to her. She said that they didn't seem to fully consider him in her opinion. But then just hours later on the night of January 4th, the police come to her, knock on her door, and let her know that they have made an arrest. And what's strange is you'd think the first thing that you would say is who? Who did you arrest? Who do you think killed my husband? 
she didn't even bother to ask. And many people think that's because she already knew who it was. At this point, Hemi Newman had been arrested for the murder of Rusty Snyderman, although he denied his connection to the murder while he was in questioning. Authorities linked a silver van to a Kia Sedona that Hemi had rented the day before the shooting and returned the day of. And inside the vehicle, investigators found fibers consistent with what would have been the beard that he had worn as his disguise. And the day after Hemi's arrest, Andrea was brought into the police station to go over some information that they had collected when they interrogated him. That's for the foundation of what you told us yesterday, what the co-workers told us today. Yeah. What is it you think they told us? The, that co-workers told mm-hmm. me? I, I have absolutely no idea. What do you think he told us? Oh, I'm sure he told you that he thought I was in love with him. Or something along those lines. He's crazy. I don't know. I don't know what he told you. That he was in love with me? That he was infatuated? That he stalked me? I don't know. You tell me. I don't, I don't know what he said. That he wanted to be my husband? Hemi awaited his trial in the DeKalb County Jail, and his wife, Ariella, filed divorce papers for several reasons, one of which being that she believed Hemi was having an affair. So with that information, the police now have to consider that maybe Andrea and Hemi were having an affair, and maybe Hemi killed Rusty to get him out of the way. And at this time, it was believed that Andrea was not aware of Hemi's actions. But that all changed when they ended up searching Hemi's phone and they found a bunch of communications between him and Andrea that definitely crossed the line of boss and employee. So Hemi's trial was set to begin on October 17th, 2011, and he first pleaded not guilty to the charges. But then on September 16th, 2011, a month before the trial was supposed to start, He changed his plea to not guilty by reason of insanity. So this essentially means he is admitting that he did kill Rusty. However, he didn't know what he was doing and therefore he was not guilty of the crime itself. And this plea also means that the prosecution doesn't have to convince a jury that he did it, but instead they have to convince them that he was sane while it happened. So this obviously means the defense is going to try to prove his insanity. And on October 28th, He admitted that he was the guy who was lying on their property face down and that his plan was to kill Rusty that day, but he decided not to because his son was with him. And during his trial, a forensic psychiatrist testified that in her evaluation of Hemi, he fit the characteristics for bipolar one disorder with psychosis. Hemi also told investigators that he and Andrea were having an affair and that he was instructed to kill Rusty by both an angel and a demon. The demon, he said, looked like Barry White, and the angel had the voice of Olivia Newton-John. And it was the angel and the demon who said that Andrea's children were in danger, and he had to protect them by killing Rusty. So several forensic psychiatrists testified during the trial. For the defense, two psychiatrists testified that Hemi was both obsessed with Andrea and that he did not know the difference between right and wrong. For the prosecution, one psychiatrist testified that it would be extremely implausible for Hemi to have been suffering manic episodes with psychosis without anyone else knowing it, given that people testified they had never known him to be experiencing hallucinations. And that same psychiatrist said that in her evaluation of Hemi, he told her about his plan to kill Rusty. But people experiencing manic behavior tend to act impulsively. Prior to November 18, 2010, to the 
defendant ever tell you ever that he was having hallucinations? No. Did he ever appear to you that he was having hallucinations? No, he was appeared extremely normal individual. Did you ever hear anything about him having hallucinations? No. Do you ever see the defendant act manically depressed such that he couldn't function? No. Do you ever see him confused? No. Do you ever see him act bipolar or to have extreme mood changes? Never. Was he pretty stable, pretty solid? Extremely stable person. Now, Andrea's testimony in Hemi's trial ended up being extremely controversial. Although she was intended to act as the prosecution's star witness, she was continuously advised by her lawyers not to testify on his behalf. So it was first believed that Hemi acted alone in killing Rusty and that he kept it all from Andrea because she wouldn't want to be with him if she knew that he was going to kill her husband. But when Andrea took the stand, both the prosecution and defense realized that she knew more than she was letting on. On the stand, Andrea denied her affair with Hemi. But she did, however, say that she and Hemi became close friends and would speak about their personal lives with one another. In the course of the time that I knew him, he discussed in the beginning how he was very happy with his children, had some financial problems, but happy in his marriage. And then it progressed on into, I'm not happy in my marriage and my wife is not, that we're not getting along. She's confrontational, and those are the natures, really, of our conversation. And what are some of the things you may have told him? Everything from hobbies that I had to uh, my children's interests to Rusty's business ventures to previous jobs I had had, everything you would talk about with uh, someone you're developing a friendship with. She said their friendship really started to blossom when they would spend so much time together for work trips and stuff. However, she denied it ever becoming romantic or sexual in any way. And she said that whenever Hemi would express feelings for her, she would never return those feelings back. Prior to November 18th, 2010, did the defendant ever express his feelings for you? Yes. And first, when did that happen? We were in Minden, Nevada at a site that uh, I was had responsibility for. That night we went to dinner. Before dinner, we were outside the restaurant and he pulled out his uh, phone and read a poem. And the insinuation of the poem to me was that he had deeper feelings for me than just friends. There were other times where in passing or in a fleeting moment or in what seemed like a very silly email, he would seem to be expressing feelings for me. And none of those feelings were ever returned. And I made myself completely clear where I stood. And she said that she never told Rusty that her boss had expressed feelings to her because she knew that he would tell her to quit her job. And at that time, it was their only source of income. She said she also didn't report him to the company because she was worried he would be protected and she would be fired. But everyone really began to doubt that when they started reading her emails in court because her emails did not seem friendly. They seemed romantic. He talks about uh, flowers and, or he talks about chocolates and flowers that they were supposed to leave in my room. I, I don't remember receiving this email. I, Do you remember your response on the very bottom? No. 
You don't remember responding? I so thoughtful and sweet, I knew you might try something like this? I don't remember responding that, no. Is that your email? It's my email address. And is that the defendant's email? It is. And did you not respond saying, those are gorgeous, seriously? It I have an appreciation for perfectly open roses. Not sure what else to say, but thank you. Unbelievably thoughtful of you. Is that yeah. your response? That's, I guess, my response, yeah. And you don't remember receiving that email or sending that email either? This is now almost two years ago, so if you have it here, then I suppose that I sent it. And their relationship was further questioned in this email exchange, where Andrea seems to be repenting for something that happened between the two of them. Hemi writes, I caused you so much pain when all I wanted was to give you so much. I know it doesn't help, but I am sorry. I shouldn't have come over. You are so beautiful, such a great person. And in the conversation about Addie, I discovered the mature, responsible mama, Andrea. Don't respond. And how did, how did you respond? I really don't know what to say at this point. I am angry. Your apology is heartfelt, but does not make the ongoing pain go away that I now have. To repent and live with for the rest of my life, not sure what I was thinking. I'm also feeling that we may have ruined, I don't know what that says, may have ruined it, not sure. I'm not trying to be hurtful. I'm just trying to be honest. I'm not sure how to live with this. Tammy Newman says, this is the last one for me. I know it won't help, but please Never forget how much I love you. And how did you respond? I know, but so do other people. I betrayed them all. I'm not sure how to deal with that for now, but my burden, not yours. But she said that this email was just a reaction to the two of them holding hands on a business trip. She said that's as far as it ever went between the two of them. In the email exchanges where intimacy is being insinuated... Andrea is adamant that nothing ever happened. And a major component of her testimony was responding to allegations that she and Hemi used their work trips as an opportunity to be together. One trip in particular was highly scrutinized during the trial. And when asked in court if Hemi ever showed up on GE trips, even when he wasn't there on business, she brought up an instant in Longmont, Colorado. But she says at the time, she thought he was there on business. It wasn't until later on that she realized he wasn't. You traveled for GE without the defendant. Did he ever show up even though he did not have GE business at that location? Yes. Uh, well, I know now that he didn't have GE business, but that was not my understanding at the time. Which trip are you talking about? I was in Longmont, Colorado, and he showed up. So you're stating now that the defendant did show up at Longmont? He showed up in Longmont, but not at, it was not my understanding it was to see me. That has only been understood by me based on now what I've heard. But previously, when she was interviewed by a chief investigator on the case back on January 5th, she said that Hemi wasn't even on this trip. And conveniently, Andrea says that she doesn't remember even talking to the police about the Longmont trip, even though we just watched footage that shows that she clearly did. Do you remember telling the police when they interviewed you that the defendant did not show up at Longmont? No, I don't think I ever discussed the Longmont trip with the police. And to cast even more doubt on Andrea, another email is read where it's indicated that Hemi was not in Colorado on business and that Andrea was 
well aware of that. How are you getting back from the airport? I give this whole you know, Friday night. I hadn't gotten I hadn't gotten that far. Family may already be at the lake, so I'll probably take the taxi home. But then to Dunwoody, then leave the next morning, being out there. What are you doing? Obviously, I did not leave a car at the airport. And then we got a car service to my home, and I drove him. Okay. How about reading the rest of it? Send a note to Carmen. Ask her to order car service for you, then we'll figure out how I get home since I'm not on business travel. Since I'm not on business travel. So he was not on GE business for Longmont. That's what that says. So why was he at Longmont? I don't know. I, well, now I know. Was he there to see you? I guess so. But despite this email saying that he wasn't there on business, Andrea maintains that she was unaware of this until much later. And in many instances throughout the trial, Andrea claims that because it had been two years since she had worked with Hemi at GE, she couldn't really remember a lot of the details. So when it came to the relationship between Hemi and Andrea, there were a few other people who testified. One of them being a bartender who worked at a local bar near one of their work trips, took the stand and said that she witnessed the two of them dancing with one another, kissing and acting like a couple. Describe what you saw. Well, imagine a dance floor and they had the entire place to themselves. What stood out most was that he kept spinning her around to the salsa music. I know at one point she kind of was dancing for him. He pulled her back. Um, let's say um, he had his hands on her on her rear end and um, she was hugging him and they looked like a couple. At any time did you see the parties kiss? Yes, I did. How many times did they kiss? I would say about three times. Okay. Also, Hemi's realtor testified to a story he once told her about a trip where the two of them were intimate. What words did he use? That they kissed and they fondled each other and then she got up and went into the bathroom. Is that what he said? Yes. Did he tell you what she actually did in the bathroom? Yes, he told me that she went into the bathroom to, quote, finish herself off. Finish herself off? Yes. Did you ask him what he meant by that? I didn't have to. Her best friend, a woman named Shana Citron, took the stand and confirmed that Andrea did enjoy the attention that she was receiving from her boss. Did Andrea Schneiderman ever state to you that she liked the attention she was getting from her boss? Yes. Shana also said that before the murder, she and Andrea had a conversation about Hemi where she denied that an affair had taken place. Shana said that Andrea told her she wouldn't consider an affair with Hemi because he was married. So she felt bad about that, but also she loved her husband. The most damning testimony that not only cast suspicion over Hemi and Andrea's relationship, but also the idea that Andrea not only knew about the murder, but was involved, also came from Shayna. If you remember, I noted earlier that Andrea had been alerted that something had happened at Dunwoody Prep. She got a call and immediately drove to the scene. And Andrea testified that she did not learn about what happened to her husband until after she arrived at the hospital. You found out at the hospital that Rusty had been shot. That's correct. Okay. Now you say the death room. At that point, did they tell you or indicate to you Rusty was in fact dead? Yep. Okay, is that the first time you found out he was dead? Yep. And you found out he was shot? Yep. I explained earlier how on her way to Dunwoody Prep, she made several phone calls. Turns out that one of these calls was to Hemi, which I will get back into in a second here. Another one of those calls was to Shayna, and she told her best friend on the phone on the way to the hospital that Rusty had been shot. However, she claimed that she did not know what happened to Rusty 
until she got to the emergency room. On November 18th, 2010, did you receive a phone call from Andrea Snyder? Yes. As soon as I answered it, I started to say, Andrea, I'm on route somewhere and I, you know, I need to go. My GPS is going to mess up if I you know, don't have access to my phone. And she immediately at the same time was screaming to me that Rusty had been shot and she didn't know if he was dead or alive and she was on the way to the hospital. Are you sure she said she was still on her way to the hospital? Yes. And she told you Rusty had been shot at that time? Yes. So everything else aside, having this information brought forward in court that she knew what had happened to her husband before she was supposed to know. I mean, just put everything into perspective for everyone. The whole jury, I mean, everyone was questioning everything she had been saying up until this point. And I mentioned before that one of the calls that Andrea made before she got to the hospital was to Hemi himself. She tried to say that this call was work-related, that she was letting him know that she had to leave the office. And while this could sound, you know, plausible in any other situation, the relationship between them that was being highly questioned made this seem like she was calling for more than that. Was it possible that she was calling Hemi to see how it went, to see if he had finished the job? Although it sounds like Andrea was emphasized the most in trial, despite it being Hemi's trial, her testimony was really important because she was there to convince the jury that he acted alone with the intent to kill, not as an act of insanity. She didn't waver from her statements that Hemi stalked her, took advantage of her, and acted without her knowledge. Andrea even suggested that her rejection of Hemi is what caused him to kill her husband. However, the testimony pointed to their romantic relationship, which established doubt that Hemi killed Rusty as an act of insanity, and rather that he did this with Andrea's knowledge so that the two of them could be together. So I know that was a lot to go over, but the trial wraps and the jury is dismissed on March 12th, 2012 to deliberate. And just three days later, they came back with their verdict. Hemi was found guilty, but mentally ill of malice murder, as well as guilty of possession of a firearm during commission of a felony. As a result of the finding of the jury and based upon all the facts and circumstances I've heard today, I'm gonna sentence you to prison to life without parole. As to count two, I'm gonna sentence you to five years in prison to run consecutive to count one, which is life without parole. But this obviously isn't the end because state prosecutors believe that Andrea arranged for Hemi to kill Rusty and may have orchestrated the entire thing. As a result, they also believe she perjured herself on the stand. In July of 2013, she was facing the following charges. One count each of malice murder, felony murder, and aggravated assault, seven counts of perjury, four counts of giving false statements, and one count each of concealing material facts and hindering apprehension of a criminal. But after some consideration, prosecutors didn't believe they actually had enough evidence to get a conviction for the malice murder, felony murder, and aggravated assault. So on July 26, a judge agreed to drop all three of those charges. However, they still believed that they had enough evidence to prove that Andrea had perjured herself on the stand and gave false statements. Andrea, of course, pleaded not guilty to those charges and awaited her trial while on house arrest. But despite her best efforts to convince the jury that she was not guilty on all of those charges, they did find her guilty on nine out of 13 of them. We the jury find the defendant, Andrea Snyderman, count one, hindering the apprehension of a criminal, guilty. Count two, concealment of material facts, 
guilty. Count three, false statement, guilty. She was scheduled to face sentencing on August 9th, 2013, where she begged the judge for leniency. Your Honor, I'm here to ask for your leniency for the sake of my children, Sophia and Ian. I'm going to try to find the words to describe what it's been like and indescribable and unimaginable almost three years. And Steve Snyderman, Rusty's brother, was among one of many who gave a victim impact statement before the judge decided her sentence. This is the second time that I've had the duty to speak to you on behalf of my parents, Marilyn and Don Snyderman, as well as my wife, Lisa, and my daughter, Samantha, about the impact of the crimes committed around the death of my brother, Rusty Snyderman. The last time I stood before you was to address the acts of the evil man who pulled the trigger that took my brother's life in such a brutal fashion. Now I find myself in the very unusual position of returning now to speak about the betrayals of another person and the devastation and havoc she has intentionally inflicted on our lives. First and most importantly, I want to remind you about the one person that some of the parties in this case seem to have forgotten about, my brother, Rusty Snyderman. It is painful to realize that for most, He is just another victim, someone that they heard about some time ago. His life, however, was so much more than that. He was special. Rusty was a caring, thoughtful person who always put his own needs second and looked for a way to make your life better. How cruel that those he tried to help betrayed him so greatly. And that day, Andrea was sentenced to five years in prison. However, she was given a credit for time served while under house arrest. Obviously, this is drastically shorter than the 20 years that the prosecution was going after. And once again, the story does not end there. In March of 2014, it was announced that Hemi was seeking a new trial. He stated that Andrea's perjury affected the outcome of his original trial. In 2015, the Georgia Supreme Court reversed Hemi's original conviction and granted him that second trial. But once again in 2006, Hemi Newman was found guilty a second time and sentenced to life in prison without parole. So as for Andrea, in the end, she ended up serving 22 months at the Arendelle State Prison and was released eventually on parole. Andrea Snyderman is a free woman today, released from prison, a fact that has many people surprised and many upset on social media. So now let me tell you why she's free today. At one time, she was charged with orchestrating the murder of her husband, Rusty. But on the eve of the trial, the prosecutor dropped those charges. Instead, she ended up getting convicted of hindering, concealment, and perjury. These are not crimes that keep you locked up forever. It was the prosecutor's choice. And now the woman who acted so strangely on the witness stand at the trial of her former boss, Hemi Newman, the man who murdered her husband, well, she can go home. Her parole was completed on August 21st, 2017, and she is now a free woman, which I know you guys will have many thoughts on. And I want to know those thoughts. I want to know what you think of the outcome here of the sentences. Do you think Andrea was guilty? Do you think she was involved in the murder? Do you think she should have gotten a longer sentence? Did she kind of get away with partaking in her husband's murder or did she truly know nothing about it? Obviously the most damning thing here is that phone call that she made to her friend on the way to the ER saying that she knew Rusty had been shot when she claimed she did not know that until she got there. What do you think the extent of Andrea and Hemi's relationship actually was? 
that is going to be it for me today, guys. Thank you for joining me for another episode. And make sure you follow the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It really does help me out. If you want to watch the video version of this show, you can find it on my YouTube channel, which will be linked, or you can just search Kendall Ray. I will be back with another episode soon, but until then, stay safe out there.